government agencies sit awkwardly in our constitutional structure. At its core, that structure is straightforward. Congress, our first branch of government, makes the laws. The president, who sits atop the second branch, implements those laws. And the judiciary, the third branch, interprets the laws when disputes arise. Federal agencies, weirdly, do all of this stuff. They issue rules of general application. They enforce the laws as well as their own rules. And many of them have their own internal tribunals. It's not right to say that these agencies are simply part of the executive branch. The agencies do more than just execute laws. And in any event, many of them, including the two we'll be discussing today, are not accountable to the president for their actions. Nor will it do to say that agencies are a fourth branch of government. Under our constitution, there is no such thing. What is to be done about this derangement of our constitutional order? That's a big question, one we're certainly not going to resolve on today's show. But this much is clear. When these agencies, whose constitutional legitimacy is shaky, engage in aggressive overreach, they should expect to see their actions challenged in court. Today, we're going to discuss two such legal challenges. The cases involve two of the OG federal agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission. They also involve two of the key encroachments agencies make on the functions of our government's first and third branches. We'll take up the third branch case first. That one is Axon versus FTC, which is about when the FTC can and cannot use its internal administrative court. Then we'll turn to the first branch case. That one is Consumers Research versus FCC, and it's about whether Congress can delegate open-ended authority to the FCC to raise and spend money for telecommunications access. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Joining me today to discuss these two cases is Trent McCotter. Trent is a partner with Boyden Gray and Associates, and he is the director of the Separation of Powers Clinic at the C. Boyden Gray Center at Antonin Scalia Law School. He filed an amicus brief in the Axon case, and he is counsel of record in the consumer's research litigation. Trent, it is so great to have you on. Thanks, Corbin. I appreciate the invitation. Well, the episode is sort of constructed around your great work since you're involved in both these cases. They're both cases of interest to tech freedom, so I'm glad to be covering them. They uh, obviously are themselves discrete issues, and yet they dive into uh, deep matters of constitutional law, as, as we're about to see. So thank you again. Starting with Axon, arguments set for that one in early November before the Supreme Court. It is tied to another case called Cochrane, which involves the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. The 
Under when I first saw this case, I was a bit surprised to see an organization go straight into federal court around the around the agency. But you hear the facts of the case, and I have a lot of sympathy for them. So Axon makes body cameras uh, that are used by law enforcement. It purchases a, I believe, defunct um, company in sort of a similar area. The FTC starts investigating uh, the merger on antitrust grounds. It becomes a huge uh, pain for Axon, big investigation, very expensive. So they, they, I believe they offered to just drop the whole thing. It became more trouble than it was worth. And the FTC uh, said no. So finally, Axon got fed up and went directly to federal court just before the FTC then uh, hauled Axon into the FTC's internal administrative tribunal. Um, and those two litigations went in parallel. The federal court case got dismissed for lack of jurisdiction by the district court, and then it went up. And that's the case that we now have before the Supreme Court. That's the table setting. Trent, you filed an amicus brief. Could you please uh, you know, tell us more about the case if you'd like, and then you know, what do you argue in your brief? Sure, so I submitted a brief on behalf of the clinic that I direct at Scalia Law School. And one of the major points that we tried to raise in that brief is that when parties are forced to go through that entire administrative process, through the whole FTC proceedings, and then go to court, they often end up with a Pyrrhic victory on these kinds of removal protection claims. So one of Axon's big arguments is that the administrative law judge who's gonna be hearing their case in front of the FTC has multiple layers of removal protections from the president. The president wants to remove one of these ALJs, the president have to remove someone else and then have to remove someone else and maybe then could get down to the administrative law judge. <laughs> That's something the Supreme Court has stated in other contexts violates Article two of the constitution, which is, provides the president with inherent oversight power of the executive branch, at least for kind of high level officials. And the Supreme Court has also held that administrative law judges typically are those sorts of high level officials. What often happens when parties challenge those sorts of protections through the administrative process, they eventually get to a court. The court says, oh, wow, you're right. This does violate the constitution. These ALJs have too many layers of removal protection. It's too hard for the president to oversee the functioning of the executive branch. That was a, that was a major constitutional violation there. Now, in terms of the remedy, however, well, it's not like this ALJ was unconstitutionally appointed. This is someone who was allowed to be there. It's just that maybe indirectly the president couldn't oversee as much of the ALJ's actions as the constitution required. So if you want to get any kind of relief, you really need to show something specific. Like why would the president want to remove this particular ALJ, this particular administrative law judge? You're almost never going to have that kind of evidence. Presidents probably don't even know, to be honest, whether uh, who these ALJs are, probably don't know what they're doing. Presidents might care about high level decisions being made by, for example, the FTC, but those decisions are usually being made by commissioners, uh, maybe by secretaries if it's a particular agency. And so people who challenge these removal protections like Axon is doing 
by the time they go through the process and end up in a circuit court proceeding, which is the kind of the normal process for an FTC proceeding, by the time they get there, they win, but not really. And so one of our arguments in the amicus brief is that given this history, and there's lots of examples of this happening in all kinds of different contexts, given this history, it makes a lot of sense for folks like F for, uh, for Axon to be able to jump out immediately and go to a district court and seek relief that way and try to fix it on the front end, have the FTC fix the removal protection, remo remove that protection the administrative law judge has or have a court declare it void one way or the other, and then continue with whatever proceedings the FTC was going to have. <clears throat> and at that point, you can say, look, we fixed the problem on the front end. We don't have to try to figure out in the back end sort of an alternate reality how it might have affected the ALJ because it didn't exist anymore. And so that's one of the arguments we try to make. And we cite a fair number of cases where this issue has come up. <clears throat> we think that kind of given the courts, the Supreme Court's decisions and related cases, uh, Axon probably has a fair chance of winning on this argument. I don't know. We'll probably get into this a little bit more. It's, it's kind of hard to say exactly which route the court might take to get there. But I do think that the difficulty that parties have had obtaining a real remedy for these sorts of violations is going to factor in either directly or maybe kind of implicitly in the court's thinking here. And also, yeah. I think it kind of a, a key fact in this analysis, again, it might be something the court mentions, it might not be, but I think it's still important, is that it's been at least four years since the Supreme Court made clear that these sorts of administrative law judges need to be removable at will by the president. The FTC still hasn't complied with that. And so I think one of Axon's good arguments, you know, atmospherically, optically, maybe also legally, is that unless courts step in and do something about this, it's just never going to fix itself. These agencies are kind of thumbing their nose at Supreme Court president. Yeah, I have, and I warned you I'd have this maybe a, a originalist rant about actually why the government may have a strong argument. And I will dive into that in a moment. But it is worth noting, there's a very strong argument on, on the side that you're talking about in that the Supreme Court has basically done this before uh, in Free Enterprise Fund, which was a case involving the uh, Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which I didn't even notice until I was preparing for this, is another private organization, just like in Consumers Research, which we'll get to in the bottom half of the episode. Uh, an organ, a private organization operating under the auspices of the SEC and um, very similar case where a private party went straight to court to challenge aspects of that organization. And uh, the Supreme Court allowed them to do that. So um, it, it, do you have anything to add about that specific case and how it might operate here? Well, so you're right. For Enterprise Fund, it addressed the same statute that's at issue, essentially the same statute that's at issue in Axon. So as you said, Axon has a, a partner case called Cochrane v. SEC. The SEC and the FTC, it's different statutes in terms of which one allows you to go to court based on which agency you're at, but they use almost the exact same language. Everyone seems to agree they'll kind of rise and fall together. Free enterprise involved the SEC. I think the only, the only real difference is that in free enterprise, like you said, there was this kind of intermediary action by the public accounting uh, 
oversight board peekaboo i think was what people abbreviated it as and it was it was easier in that case for free enterprise to argue that they needed to be able to sue in federal district court right now because maybe they'll never even end up with an adverse agency action mm-hmm. the peekaboo is investigating them making them turn over things maybe that leads to nothing Maybe there's never an SEC order. Maybe there's never even an SEC, a true SEC investigation. And so Peekaboo's argument, or excuse me, uh, for Enterprise's argument is that Peekaboo is uh, causing constitutional harm, but yet there's no real path to having a court address that harm unless a court, a district court can do so right now. Now, here for Axon and Cochrane, as you said, those folks are involved in ongoing proceedings with the commissions themselves. And so for them, it's a little bit harder to argue that there's this real possibility they may never get an adverse decision from the commission that they could then seek judicial review from. But as we said, free enterprise involved the same statute that's at issue here. And once the Supreme Court has said that statute's not exclusive, that's not the only way that you can challenge something that's going on at one of these commissions, then it opens the door and other parties like Axon Cochrane have now argued uh, that that door includes not just exactly what happened in free enterprise, but similar types of arguments. It doesn't really matter that much that Peekaboo was involved in one and isn't involved in another. Yeah, it definitely could be a wrinkle that is problematic for Axon. That yeah, I, I think it was like the the agency they issued an investigative report that castigated the practices of the party, but there was no actual sanction. So then they yeah exactly they would have to purposely break a rule to get into the um, administrative procedure to challenge it. But a wrinkle upon a wrinkle, I don't know if this will become important, but Axon did go into federal court before the administrative proceedings started. And I don't know if that might be found to be de minimis or ultimately not consequential, but it's an interesting little fact that I'd be interested if one of the justices makes a thing of it, of, well, they were waiting and... um, in theory, that would mean the FTC could start an administrative proceeding to strip a court of jurisdiction that might have had jurisdiction to begin with. That all gets weird. Um, but I do have to say, okay, so as I was reading through these briefs, and I'm I'm now going to dive in on my weird little journey here, and you'll be free to comment on it or not as you as you wish. But I noticed there's there's a We live in interesting times with lots of kind of political realignments and stuff. And some of them are kind of jurisprudential too. Historically speaking, and just very generally speaking, uh, to use these terms loosely, the conservative position was that federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. And the liberal position was that federal courts should be able to hear every case under the sun, basically. That was the world I certainly was exposed to when I was in law school. And that has shifted a little bit here, where it is the um, democratic-controlled government that is arguing that jurisdiction is limited. And as a result, I actually found that the government wasn't as aggressive in their arguments as they might have been, because they still probably want to, um, they want to win on narrower grounds here and not be making arguments about how Congress has the power to like strip jurisdiction. So I want to spell that out just briefly. 
28 USC 1331 is the statute that gives the federal courts uh, federal question jurisdiction. And it's a very general statute. As Axon rightly points out, it suggests that you can kind of go into federal court anytime your constitutional rights are imperiled. Um, but the government rightly responds that there's a lot of case law under another law called the Administrative Procedure Act, which says, if there is a specific statute that gives you a remedy from agency action, that statute governs and it trumps 1331. That is actually a common thing. It is the general rule that you cannot rush into federal court and go around an agency proceeding if that is adequate, if the agency proceeding is adequate. And so it puts Axon in the position of saying that that process is not adequate. And so there's an underlying argument being made. Sometimes it's very explicit. Sometimes it's just sort of made to be this ominous thing of, well, if we can't go straight into court to, to challenge a constitutional violation, that is itself a violation of the constitution or something very bad or very questionable. There is certainly case law supporting that. I'm not saying that that is not a valid argument under Supreme Court precedent as it stands. But if we want to be hardcore originalists, um, you do actually look back and a lot of that is very constructed. It's very much a gloss by judges in a less originalist age. The originalist understanding of Article 3, arguably, uh, is that Congress has complete power over the jurisdiction of the lower federal courts. Article 3 says that there has to be a Supreme Court. It does not say there have to be lower federal courts. They are created in Congress's discretion, and Congress can give them limited jurisdiction or wider jurisdiction. Um, and nowhere in there is it written that all constitutional violations must go into federal court. Uh, lest we forget, like, Section 1331 federal question jurisdiction didn't even exist uh, until I believe the late 19th century. The federal courts were limited to hearing diversity cases. And so if you go back to Antonin Scalia, namesake of the law school of your clinic, uh, he was adamant in saying that, um, quote, it is simply untenable that there must be a judicial remedy for every constitutional violation. And he brought up the history that I just mentioned, and he also brought up the fact that there's nothing really in logic that makes a constitutional violation ipso facto worse than some other statutory violation in every single case. They're not necessarily distinguishable. If the government violates the law and costs you $100,000 versus, uh, I don't know, violates some equal, you know, the equal protection provision and costs you $100, it may make no difference to you what's been violated. Um, so there's not necessarily something special about it. And then going back even further, you could say, uh, going back all the way to a case like Ex Parte Young, um, Harlan the Elder, the first Justice Harlan, dissented in that case and said, look, um, just because you can't bring a constitutional violation into federal court, well, the state courts are courts of general jurisdiction. They will always be able to hear these things. They should be mandated to hear them in the event that there's no federal jurisdiction. Um, 
So the Constitution doesn't collapse or something just because you narrow the jurisdiction of the federal courts. Um, so this is just a long-winded way to say, um, I'm not sure where that actually falls out if you, if you want to, I, everything here is so rotten in the sense of I sympathize with Axon and their situation, but I'm not quite sure about this whole thing that we have to be expanding the jurisdiction of the federal courts in this situation. So starting kind of with your, your first point about the shifting paradigms here, I've noticed the same thing. I have a couple cases besides the ones we're discussing today that involve preclusion of various sorts. A lot of these same issues come up. And I've noticed the same argument that the kind of judges that we had thought might be on our side saying that, of course, these claims aren't precluded. How could you close the courthouse door on folks bringing these are typically the more conservative judges, whereas we thought they would be the more liberal judges. And it's hard to say whether you know, the particular cases we're bringing have kind of a political angle to them that might be influencing that, or whether there really has been kind of a paradigmatic shift. I think, honestly, it's more of the latter. And I've been trying to think about why that is. Why have, in particular, the, the more conservative libertarian judges seem to shift away from favoring preclusion and sending things to agencies first towards the new version, which is presumptively federal district courts have jurisdiction over almost anything unless there's some really clear statute elsewhere that precludes it. The best I can come up with is the same statute you cite, Section 1331, which gives federal district courts jurisdiction over all, and the Fifth Circuit en banc decision in Cochran emphasizes this, all, not some or most, but all constitutional claims. And so I think a lot of judges who view themselves as true textualists say, that establishes not just a presumption of federal district court jurisdiction over constitutional claims, but a very strong presumption. And if the government wants to get out of it for a particular case, they're going to need to point to some other statute that very clearly precludes this sort of claim that the plaintiff is bringing. The issue, of course, is that most of the statutes that these agencies have, like FTC, SEC, FCC, the statutes that they have by and large refer only to particular kinds of decisions the agency can make. And they say those particular decisions typically go to a circuit court. And so it kind of naturally raises the question of, well, what about all the other kinds of things that these agencies can do, all the other actions they take that might not really be in order or whatever word the statute uses? Well, what happens with those? And the old presumption, I think, was Oh, well, in those cases, you have you can't sue anywhere until you get a final order from an agency and fall within that agency's particular statutory language and can then go to circuit court. Until that happens, you've got nothing. Whereas the new shift, I think the new understanding seems to be, well, actually, in those cases, what you've got is Section 1331, if it's a constitutional claim. Now, a lot of claims won't be constitutional claims. A lot of claims will be kind of case-specific disputes about facts, maybe in case-specific interpretations of statutes, those are less clearly under 1331 as a default. And so I think what a lot of the kind of newer, maybe younger conservative libertarian judges are doing is putting a, a heavy amount of weight on section 1331 as the default presumption. And kind of turning to the, the next point you raised about the court's 
kind of equitable authority to hear certain kinds of claims, especially given the language in the Administrative Procedure Act. I think what what courts seem to be arguing, and this has come up in the Axon briefing as well, because the government argues that Axon doesn't even have a cause of action here. The APA says you have mm-hmm. to wait for yeah. final action. And what Axon says in response is, well, hold on here. Cases like Ex Parte Young, which is over a century old now, and even going back further to the Judiciary Act of 1789, for example, these cases, those statutes have said that courts do have uh, inherent Article Three power to hear challenges to ongoing constitutional violations. And you can trace that back even before the United States and England in the 1600s. This is one of the few uh, powers that courts had kind of undisputedly to review ongoing claims of illegality. And it's not entirely clear whether Congress could foreclose that. I think the judicial uh, presumption would be that Congress can if they want to, especially for the lower courts, like you said, because Congress controls lower courts in their jurisdiction. It's just that if Congress wanted to do that, it would need to be extremely clear. Even for an ongoing constitutional violation, you can't invoke kind of the ex parte young theory of going straight to court with an equitable cause of action. You could call it an equitable cause of action. Some people call it ultra vires in the sense that it's uh, an agency or executive official that's done something beyond their power. But there is a long history of doing that. And I think a lot of judges who are conservative and libertarian are still willing to recognize that long presumption, just given how long it's been around until there's some really clear language from Congress that seems to cut it off. So I think that's how most of these folks get their claims like Axon. I think that's the needle they're trying to thread is they'll say, okay, look, we're being really textualist here, very strictly textualist on jurisdiction by citing 1331 as the default presumption. And then for our cause of action, well, we don't need to be quite so textualist there because this ability to bring an equitable cause of action under the court's inherent power is something that's been around forever and nobody questions it. In fact, a lot of cases that are high profile cases end up being equitable causes of action. You may remember, for example, the Texas, the uh, United States v. Texas case about SB8, Texas's abortion law, all the challenges to that, almost all the challenges were ex parte young equitable authority type cases. And so, and there's there's a long string of other high profile cases of the same sort. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest even among the conservative judges at cutting back completely on that equitable authority to hear cases. Yeah, no, that's all great stuff. And um, I brought a, I brought up this stuff mainly because just nobody's talking about it in the Supreme Court um, because that neither side has an interest in doing so. Um, and it is uh, mildly annoying to me that this stuff's not getting aired out. But that doesn't mean that the everything I just described is correct, quote unquote. I mean, to take a like originalist genealogy approach where we're going to dig down, a lot of originalists, you know, they're not though the sky falls, do everything to get to the exact pristine original understanding. Like there, you know, Scalia used to say, I'm an originalist, I'm not a nut. Um, I find Ex Parte Young to be sort of this questionable case where, you know, the, to get around the 11th Amendment sovereign immunity, they basically said an officer who's breaking the Constitution is not part of the state. So you can sue him 
But then what does that do to section 1983, which says you can sue the government? And well, I, you know what, it's not worth getting into, but the, the point being to overturn ex parte young would be such an earthquake of a, of a thing to do. You know, it's a lot of water under the bridge to go back and say, well, the original justice Harlan had a really good point there. Um, and I think you're right that all of that stuff can just get skipped over if you just focus in on Section 1331, which arguably flips all the presumptions. Uh, was it, um, I think Justice Alito maybe in Elgin, there was a case where he basically said that of, um, once you've got 1331, it is now for Congress to make clear that you're going against 1331 and you're stripping the jurisdiction, which none of these statutes do. Um, but I guess my position on that is it's one thing to just make a very straightforward, these are how the statutes interact argument promoting 1331. I get a little skeptical when it's this, um, oh, this is so unfair and therefore you have to do something because it is very unfair. But by that logic, we should uh, repeal the Rooker-Feldman doctrine. That says that if a state court is mistreating you, you cannot run straight to federal court. You have to go through the state court system. And having been in private practice, uh, I can tell you some pretty insane things happen in state, certain state courts. Uh, you wanna talk about you know, violations of due process. Um, the, and the last thing I'll note on this, you know, it is an interesting debate about, um, the Judiciary Act of 1789 and Article 3 and, you know, fortunately it's hypothetical, but if Congress just wanted to, you know, abolish the federal courts and there's, there's a lot of literature on this, uh, Professor Hart and Professor Gunther, these famous law professors had, you know, a debate on this and I am sympathetic with Gunther's view that, um, saying the federal courts have to have some, some kind of jurisdiction over things that are sufficiently bad um, confuses the desirable with the constitutionally mandated. That's what he wrote. But um, as you note, it's probably just academic in this case. Right, Thunder Basin, which is a case that I think we'll talk about a little bit later, discussed this point citing an, a previous case called Webster. Well, let's dive into it now. Yeah, let's let's head into Thunder Basin because um, it it is the governing precedent. Um, the Ninth Circuit took it very seriously, and yet it is such a classic example of what I kind of alluded to earlier of the of the days when the court just sort of made up rules based on the case in front of it and wasn't thinking really about any of the stuff that I've been harping on here. So, uh, go ahead. So I was going to say uh, Thunder Basin. There are a couple important parts of it. And one part is that it says, citing a previous case, Webster, that maybe Congress could just foreclose access to really important constitutional claims going to federal courts at all, or at least the lower courts. But they would have to do it just so unbelievably clearly. And I don't know that you could probably find a statute that would so clearly preclude that kind of jurisdiction unless Congress really just did all of a sudden decide that it's just sick of all this and it wants to stop everything. So I doubt there's any statute on the books that would actually meet that test. Yeah, I the, think the, the closest instance was Boumediene versus Bush, um, which is a different context because it's habeas and that has all kinds of weird stuff. But when Congress tried to strip jurisdiction over Guantanamo cases and Kennedy in a terrible opinion, uh, maybe a just one, but a just hash of the law, uh, said that Congress couldn't do that. 
Right. So my guess is that the court leaves open in cases like Thunder Basin or Webster, this possibility that Congress could come and shut the door on jurisdiction over even ongoing constitutional claims. And I think they do that because it allows them to say, well, look, we're just following the equitable history that we've had for centuries. Don't worry, we're not creating a cause of action. Only Congress can do that. This is kind of like a longstanding, everyone agrees upon exception to that rule. But the way it's an exception is that Congress could come back and get rid of it. That's why it's an exception. And they just kind of know that odds are Congress is never actually going to do that. Or in the very rare case, like Boumediene, where Congress tries, the court can always try to like, you know, wriggle around it and find some way that at least some federal court somewhere can hear this type of claim. Mm-hmm. So my guess is the court will probably leave open that sort of thing again in this case and say, well, you know, if any of this is wrong, Congress is free to come in and just strip jurisdiction completely, knowing that Congress almost certainly won't do that for administrative challenges like the kind that Axon and Cochrane raise. The second part of Thunder Basin, which is something you also alluded to and what it's more famous for in practicality, are the Thunder Basin factors, where the court essentially is trying to figure out when did Congress really intend to preclude someone suing over a certain kind of claim right now in district court, and when did they intend to allow you to bring it in? And this is all implicit, of course, if the statutes were clear, if if these statutes clearly said the kind of claim Axon wants to bring must go to the circuit court first, we wouldn't be here. If it said it can't go to district court or it must go to district court, we wouldn't be here. It's all about implied interpretations of these statutes. I think Thunder Basin laying it out in kind of a rigid structure like the court does, where you go through this factor and then this factor and the, and the third factor, and there's a little bit of overlap between some of them. And sometimes you can tell the court kind of gets on a roll. The first two are in one direction. So let's go ahead and knock the third one down too and say it's the same conclusion. I don't think laying them out so strictly is particularly helpful. I do think they have some value in the sense that it helps judges think, how would Congress write a statute if they were trying to allow a certain kind of claim, or how would they write a statute if they were trying to preclude a certain kind of claim? Because a big part of the Thunder Basin factors is whether the challenger would have some alternative ground for pursuing judicial relief. And I think the presumption is that typically Congress wants people to have some avenue of review. And if the argument the government's pushing is that the person won't really get judicial review in a meaningful sense, well, that's probably not what Congress would have meant, right? Like if they really meant that, they would have been clearer. And so that helps a little bit, but then everyone just fights over what meaningful review means. Well, maybe I could get review. It would be years down the road. And as we started off with, as my amicus brief argues, in a lot of cases you get review, it gives you no actual relief in any sense. Is that meaningful? And you end up in fights about that. And I think that's what the majority and dissent and axon at the Ninth Circuit had a big fight about, whether this is really meaningful. And so it'll be interesting to see at the Supreme Court what they do with the Thunder Basin factors in these cases. It's interesting because the most recent example we have from the Supreme Court on agency implied preclusion is Elgin, the case you mentioned earlier. It involves Civil Service Reform Act, a different statute, but it's similar kind of issues. And the opinion was written by Justice Thomas. What he does is he goes through the text of the statute 
and says, this question really just turns on, are you a certain kind of federal employee? And do you have a certain kind of injury you're complaining about? In this case, the plaintiffs have been fired. He says, if those two things are both checked, yes, then you're covered by the statute. And if you're trying to get into court some other way, like you're just precluded. Don't get clever. Don't try to come up with some extra angle, some constitutional theory, some different court you could sue in. None of it's going to work. The statute clearly covers you and you're done. Very textualist argument. He then gets into the Thunder Basin factors and it's kind of like, well, I guess we should address these things, right? We've said that they're important and everyone cites them. And I'm kind of guessing, speculating that when they were writing that opinion, Justice Thomas probably did the first part and said, this is all text, the answer's clear. And then he needed votes or whatever, yeah. Right, and someone or some people, some other justices said, well, wait a minute, what about Thunder Basin? And so they went through them all and what a coincidence, they reached the exact same outcome that the text would require. Yeah, it's another area. It's another way that this case creates these crisscrossing ideological currents that could end up making for weird uh, votes or something unexpected happening. I mean, another factor I would bring up, the notion that you get to go over to federal court to have something about the FTC process struck down, quote unquote, should probably rub Thomas the wrong way. Uh, Thomas, along with uh, Judge Ho and Judge Oldham in the Fifth Circuit have pointed out, again, going back to what's the originalist understanding, they say, courts don't strike down laws. They refuse to enforce unconstitutional laws as to the parties before them. Well, if that's all the court does, then it doesn't look quite as bad to go up to appeal an FTC administrative proceeding and have that court say, we're not going to enforce this cease and desist order because the FTC is whatever, structurally unsound. Um, Anyway, back to Thunder Basin. I mean, Thunder Basin, even if the factors are, are commonsensical, I mean, how do they interact with each other? If you get two out of three, is that good enough? Um, shout out to the folks at Washington Legal Foundation who did a brief on that and, and basically urged, you know, ditch these factors. I personally would rather the court focus on, well, you've got a statute, 1331, you've got the Administrative Procedure Act, how do those interact? Um, you're right that some of these factors maybe play in in an attempt to sort of reconstruct Congress's thinking. Um, I'm also potentially just blinded by the fact that it was written by Justice Blackmun, who um, I put in my notes here, I was checking back. I mean, the Supreme Court's been on a campaign of overturning Blackmun decisions. A couple of terms ago, they overturned Williamson County and a decision called Nick. Blackmun messed it up saying, if you haven't gone through a state provided procedure for a takings claim. Your claim is not ripe under the takings clause, no basis for that. And also left people with a res judicata problem once they got into federal court. And so this decision, Nick says that decision makes no sense and overturns it. Just this last term, we had Dobbs, not gonna get into abortion, you know, the whole separate issue, but one thing most of us do agree on is that Blackman's opinion in Roe was not a good piece of judicial craftsmanship, whatever you think about the result. Um, John Hart Eli said of, of Blackman's work, it's bad um, because it is not constitutional law, but also that it gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. 
Um, so sorry to kick Blackman hard in the shins, but uh, Thunder Basin is his product. And so maybe we'll see uh, yet another Blackman opinion overturned this term. That is quite possible. Well, you know, it's interesting. Thunder Basin, a lot of the factors that the court cites are kind of little snippets of prior opinions that were written by Justice Douglas. So uh, he's also not known for you know, writing particularly crisp, rigor, analytical opinions. And so this whole area kind of has a long lineage of, at the very least, kind of confusing, ambiguous factor tests. And I I kind of suspect that the court's still going to do some sort of Thunder Basin analysis here. As you said, it's a little hard to go through them in any kind of real kind of serious objective inquiry. And I think a perfect example would be the third factor, which I think most people would probably say is the least important of the three, maybe most obviously because it's listed last. But that one asks whether the agency has particular expertise on this issue that's being challenged. Now, that's an easy answer if someone, for example, in front of the FTC wants to dispute antitrust literature. Well, that's what the FTC does. That's their thing. But probably if you're at that point, you've already lost on some other basis. And so what actually is interesting is that on this third factor, you can find cases from the Supreme Court where they say that, well, even if the agency doesn't have expertise in this particular issue, maybe they'll address something else in advance that would kind of moot out the constitutional issue. That was Elgin. So Elgin seemed to say, well, this is a constitutional claim, but when you really think about it, kind of like 3D chess here. That is something that the agency will have some expertise on, just not the way you're thinking about. There are other cases like uh, Carr v. Saul, which was a 2021 Supreme Court case about Social Security claims that says the exact opposite. It says agencies have no expertise whatsoever when it comes to structural constitutional challenges. So I'm not entirely sure what they're going to do with that part. I kind of suspect the current court much prefers the Carr v. Saul version, which is that agencies have no business addressing constitutional issues. And the language that's at least in some tension with that from Elgin, which is a 2012 case that, as I said, was written by Justice Thomas, although that part may have been under duress. I've got a feeling that they'll try to distinguish that or maybe just ignore it, to be honest. And that yeah, also especially should... here where you're saying we challenge the FTC's very existence in its current state. Right. As opposed to Elgin, which was very clearly a one-off employment dispute. One guy gets fired. It was a couple of people, but a few folks had been challenged, had been fired uh, for not complying with a certain statute. And it's so easy to, to label that kind of claim as something that's supposed to go through the administrative process. It's it's all about you, it's all about your particular facts, that sort of thing. And so the kind of getting back to another point that you had raised about whether uh, judges truly strike down laws and, and whether there is to be seen a broader kind of rippling out effect from these sorts of decisions. This came up in Cochrane at the Fifth Circuit in the en banc decision there, where the majority decision relies over and over and over again, you know, dozens of times probably on the fact that Cochran was raising a structural challenge to the Securities and Exchange Commission. The dissent says, what is a structural challenge? What does this mean? You know, where does this term come from? What kind of thing is a structural challenge versus not a structural challenge? And as you said, the reason that it's interesting is because it 
besides just kind of inherently interesting and it's a difficult question, but it's also interesting because it kind of indirectly triggers this dispute among even conservative judges about what is the proper role of a judge. Is there really such a thing as a structural challenge in the sense that like you're striking down entire structures, you're saying this whole thing is unconstitutional and henceforth that you know will be void, or are you just applying decisions in a case-by-case basis? And I think maybe this is just me overreading the opinion, but I think you can see at least some attempt to, to address this in the Cochran on Bank decisions because most of the time they call it a structural challenge there. Sometimes, however, they call it a separation of powers challenge. The majority and the dissent go back and forth between those terms, usually saying structural, but not always. And I think we might see a shift in language from the, the kinds of claims that are presumably not precluded being labeled as structural and being labeled more as separation of powers challenges, because I think it's easier for one individual like Cochrane or one entity like Axon to say, well, this is a big separation of powers issue here. What kind of control does the president have over the executive branch? Or you know, what kind of control does the judiciary have to review cases? Those are separation of powers issues. They're not so much structural in the sense that we're asking a judge or a court to just eliminate an agency or to make decisions for parties who aren't in front of it. But when you use the term structural challenge, it conjures up major sweeping decisions that those kinds of judges don't particularly like. So maybe again, that's just me overreading Cochrane, but I think we might see a shift in language again between the circuit courts and the Supreme Court when they address these sorts of challenges. Well, we finished on this case by truly digging to the bottom, to the fundamental question of judicial power and its nature. that was great. I mean, that case, some cases, they just have an entire world within them. And I'm so thankful that you were here to explore all that with me. Um, we, we have gone quite a long time on that because it's such an interesting case. I do want to turn to consumers research. You've been a very good sport because you just wrote an amicus brief in Axon and consumers research. You are uh, counsel of record is a big case for you. Um, so I'm Let's turn to it now. Uh, We devoted an episode on the show to the Universal Service Fund. That is number 318 for anyone who's interested in it. And our general counsel, Jim Dunstan, did a great job of uh, explaining what the USF is and what it does and the ins and outs of uh, its pros and its cons and its defects. In short, it is a government fund to uh, pay for telecommunications access. And in the modern day, that generally means getting broadband to rural and underserved areas and hospitals and schools. Um, You have brought a challenge to the statute on non-delegation grounds. Um, There is also an interesting private delegation wrinkle and there's a taxation wrinkle. So please uh, tell us all about your case and your arguments. I'll start by saying we don't particularly have a beef with the notion of universal service, that people should have easier access to uh, telecommunication services and that sort of thing. The real issue here, as you said, is the way that this program is funded. Now, unlike most government programs where Congress sets aside a certain amount of money that then gets spent on the program. Universal service is funded directly by 
essentially every telephone user in the country. If you look on your monthly phone bill, if you look closely, there's a universal service charge or universal universal service tax, USF tax, something like that. It's usually not much, maybe a couple dollars each month. But when you add that up over hundreds of millions of phone lines, the total every year ends up being about eight to $10 billion that are collected, not by Congress, really, but by a federal agency, Federal Communications Commission. And then not even really by the FCC, there's actually a private company called Universal Service Administrative Company, USAC, that the FCC has redelegated all of this power to. Essentially every quarter, USAC decides how many billions of dollars will we need to try to achieve universal service requirements this year. And there's all kinds of programs that this money goes to funding. They then calculate how much money they think uh, phone companies will end up generating in revenue on international and long distance phone calls, that sort of thing. Just divide one number by the other, you get a taxing rate. That taxing rate then gets applied essentially to create that bill, that charge you see on your monthly bill. Our argument is that the the statutes that give the FCC the power to run this program don't impose any kind of objective restrictions, even in the most loose sense of the word, on how much money the FCC can raise. And I guess kind of by, uh, by consequence as well, how much money USAC can raise. There's no formula, there's no cap, there's no rate, there's not even a loose formula in the sense of Congress saying, FCC calculate this number and FCC calculate this number and multiply them together, and that will be the universal service fund tax every quarter. Not even that. And then, even worse, the statute says that the FCC can redefine universal service. And there's some principles listed, but they're all very uh, vague, generic things. So there's this sort of weird, I call it kind of like a double delegation, where Congress gave the FCC all this power to raise money, and there's no real objective limitation on it. And then Congress also gave the FCC the power to kind of redefine its ability to raise money. And if there's other examples like this out there, I haven't come across any. And unsurprisingly, when an agency doesn't really have any kind of statutory limits, when Congress has felt like they have completely offloaded this to an agency, nobody feels responsibility for it. And the rates have increased dramatically. I think in the last 25 years, the tax rate has gone from two or three percent to more like 30 to 35 percent. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Jim on uh, the episode we talked about this said he wouldn't be surprised if it's 50 percent in a few years. Um, you have an obstacle in raising a non-delegation argument under the current doctrine because the current test is the intelligible principle test. And that is um, very mushy. I mean, the classic case and you distinguish it and I look forward to you explaining that because I thought you did a good job of in your brief. Um, There's a national broadcasting company, I think is the name of the case, where uh, it, it's not its not even actually the only case, but there have been multiple cases where the Supreme Court has upheld as an, uh, 
as a permissible delegation, Congress saying basically act in the public interest. And if that's you know not an overdelegation, it's hard to know what is. Um, so I thought it was interesting in your brief, you talk about the original understanding of non-delegation first, and then you tackle this daunting intelligible principle standard. Uh, I thought that was an interesting choice. I think there's good, good potential reason for it given the current um, landscape at the court. So could you dig into why you ordered the arguments that way, maybe what you see as going on in the courts that justifies that, and then also explain why you still win in your view under the intelligible principle standard. So I have like three questions in one. Sure. So the reason we let off with the originalist argument is that I think it's always helpful to start with first principles and explain what did the founders think? What was the traditional understanding in terms of how much power could Congress give to the executive branch? And we give some examples. We cite a bunch of the founding fathers. We cite a bunch of the documents and writings they did to kind of lay out the test. And as you note, we also cite Justice Gorsuch's uh, dissent, I believe it was, and Gundy, which indicated it was signed by four justices, an indication that the court is willing to consider cutting back on the loose non-delegation doctrine. And so we cite all of these things to kind of lay the foundation for what the right answer should be and where the Supreme Court seems to be interested in going. Also, just as a practical matter, I didn't want the government to argue I'd somehow waived or forfeited this argument. I wanted it to be front and center that this is what we think the right answer should be. We do acknowledge, of course, that under current Supreme Court precedent, this intelligible principle test is the binding one. And we go through why we think even under that test, we win. Now, Justice Gorsuch has kind of an intermediary theory here, which is, well, intelligible principle, maybe that is the real test. It's just that we have relaxed that phrase so much that it's become meaningless. When it was originally announced by the Supreme Court almost a century ago, it actually had some real teeth. So kind of setting that option aside, which I think we kind of wrap into our originalist understanding, we try to argue even under the very loose intelligible principle test for what it's become that we still win. And it helps because there's a case called Whitman, which involved the EPA setting certain like pollutant standards and requirements across the country under one of these extremely vague statutory grants of power, essentially do something in the public interest. And the court said that was fine. The opinion was written by Justice Scalia. But what Whitman also says is that what counts as an intelligible principle will vary based on the kind of power that Congress is giving to the executive branch. So I seized on that language and said, you know, when you really go through all the old Supreme Court cases going back a century that deal with non-delegation, they kind of break into two groups. You, most of them are about very technical scientific matters where there's a huge spectrum of acceptable answers. It's, it's really difficult in a practical sense to think of how Congress could write a specific statute for every single pollutant and what the level would be. And it might change every year and it could be based on a hundred different factors. And so courts have been willing to give Congress and in turn the executive a lot more flexibility there. And just essentially saying, you know, what, what more could we ask of Congress? You know, they could try to write something more specific 
in these very technical areas. But that's just asking so much of Congress to do. That's the first group of cases. The second group of cases are ones that involve kind of like very core historical legislative powers, like raising money. And we argue our case falls into that category. Congress knows how to raise money. Remember, this was essentially the purpose of Parliament originally. It existed to raise money for the king so that he couldn't uh, try to extract it himself. And so Congress surely knows how to write a statute with a little more specificity in that context. They know how to put caps on how much money can be uh, raised. They know how to put formulas in, that sort of thing. And in fact, the cases that the court has addressed in the historical context involve statutes like that. The most recent example, a case from the 1980s called Skinner, involved uh, Congress delegating revenue raising power to an agency, but Congress said, the amount that the agency can raise shall not exceed 105% of the amount that Congress itself appropriates. There were some other formulas that Congress imposed in the statute as well. And so when you combine those two things, the court said, this clearly is an intelligible principle. So we try to break up the world of intelligible principle into two big buckets. And we say, we fall in the bucket of more objective revenue raising requirements, not the bucket of very complex scientific technical matters. I like that. Yeah. So I kind of wish we had a better term than delegation and non-delegation because I actually was talking about this uh, with uh, Commissioner Noah Phillips of the FTC on the show. Um, it's, a, it's such a simple and fundamental thing. Congress writes the laws. That is such an intuitive schoolhouse rock thing and delegation sounds technical. Um, the risk though, I mean, we're in a situation where because Congress has sort of uh, not stopped, it's sl slipped in doing its job and is passing a lot of authority to the agencies and the executive branch. You end up with a fight between the agencies and the courts over how to make our system of government work when Congress is kind of abdicated. And it's unfortunate because Congress should be writing the laws, but at the same time, as between government agencies and courts, neither of them really has uh, full democratic legitimacy. I don't wanna live under a system of judicial supremacy any more than one of agency supremacy. So you end up with the situation of, with Congress passing all this authority to the agencies, how far should the courts go in pushing back? And what I like about the way you just explained it is I get a little bit uncomfortable with some of the people out there who basically, they seem to be okay with the idea of the judiciary just, uh, I don't know, like draining the swamp, going in and just gutting these agencies. And I don't know, it just makes me uneasy. And you just did a great job of explaining where no, I mean, there are situations where there are technical issues where Congress can delegate a fair bit of authority, and that is distinct, and that may be permissible, and still have this case um, be an impermissible delegation, particularly when, um, of course, Congress doesn't want to set the exact dollar amount, because then it has to take responsibility and accountability, and if there's one thing it should be doing, it should be setting the dollar amount that the government is spending. So I, I like that. And that's one of the nice things about this case, because it provides, if we were to reach the Supreme Court, it provides the Supreme Court with kind of a menu of options, if it were interested. It could go the full bore 
originalist non-delegation theory of Congress needs to really lay out almost everything. Congress needs to make the big policy choices. The term that Justice Gorsuch uses in his Gundy dissent is that Congress can let the executive fill up the details. That's a term that I think John Marshall had originated in probably the Wayman case 200 years ago. Yeah, it was Wayman. As with most of this area, it's easier said than done, but that is seen as a relatively strict test. Congress is going to have to be pretty specific with how it does things and how it announces things. The court could go that far if it wants. The court could also take kind of a half step and say, well, we don't need to address that issue now. But this case, it involves this revenue raising power. And we argue that it involves taxation in particular, not just any old revenue, but kind of pulling money from everyone to then be redistributed to almost everyone. That's a tax. So like taxing power in particular is something that should be subject to at least a little bit more scrutiny. And you could frame it either as the intelligible principle just requires a little bit more here. And we think there's case law to support that. You could also say that Skinner case from the 1980s, which said that taxation non-delegations don't have a stricter test. You could say, well, remember, you need to read that in context of the statute there. The statute there did have several very clear objective uh, limitations on the agency. And our case involving the FCC doesn't have that. So it's a very easy way to distinguish Skinner and say that, well, at least in this context, we're going to require a little bit more. The court could also, if they wanted, address just the private non-delegation aspect of the case involving USAC. The court could say, well, we don't need to really get into the whole big picture non-delegation stuff because what's going on here is especially crazy, but there could be kind of a shot across the bow and maybe separate opinions from different justices saying, yeah, that is crazy. That's unconstitutional. But you know, even what Congress let the FCC itself do is unconstitutional, and here's why. You kind of notice this happening in a lot of areas of law where before it works its way into a majority opinion, there'll be separate opinions laying out something, kind of, as I said, shots across the bow. And you could say since Gundy, which came out years and years ago now, that which was, it's a dissent by Justice Gorsuch, but it probably gets cited 10 times more often than the majority because everyone sees what's happening and sees that there's a lot of interest in this area. And so people kind of know, and I'd like to think maybe that at least with some of the newer bills they're drafting, maybe Congress has this in mind of this might've this might have worked a decade ago or 20 years ago or 100 years ago, but if we want this statute to hold up over the next 20 years, we might want to be a little more specific with the kinds of things we're putting in there. So it might yeah. also change behavior going forward. Yeah, worth spelling out. So Gundy, you had four liberals in the plurality. You had three justices in dissent. You had Justice Alito, who uh, was in the position of the case then being a 4-4 tie because Justice Kavanaugh did not participate. And he said, I am not going to uh, do something. Basically, he was like, I'm not going to narrow the non-delegation uh, or sorry, expand non-delegation, narrow the amount that can be delegated in a case that uh, doesn't have a full bench. And so we are now sitting in a situation with where the court has changed since then that likely that dissent would now be the majority if the same case came there today and hence the, the environment where people are expecting changes. Um, I should also point out a uh, quick plug for Tech Freedom. We filed in support of your case an amicus brief. And uh, yes, we bit off uh, probably the easiest part in saying um, 
um, whatever else you might think about this case, the notion that there are um, private organizations making law should strike one as totally insane within our system. Um, and we thank you for the brief. It was great to have support. And I know you filed it in a couple of different circuits now. As I said, this process of setting the quarterly tax rate, it happens every three months, it's quarterly. And so every time a new one is set, we bring a new challenge. We've got a couple going across the country now. So we yes. appreciate your willingness to support our various tentacles. I well, and I look forward to some some oral arguments. You're in the of the ones that we participate, the Fifth Circuit, which is um, Texas and a few surrounding states, and then the Sixth Circuit, which is Michigan and Ohio and a, I think um, maybe Indiana, I think it is. And there are some very smart judges in both of those circuits. I have my fingers crossed for particular people I'd love to see on the panel <laughs> and the oral arguments. Um, so we'll see. I'm excited about it. Uh, Trent, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. You are the director of the Separation of Powers Clinic, so you're involved in, shall we say, just this space doing these kinds of things, such fun issues in addition to being important ones. Could you tell us a bit about the clinic and your mission and what you're up to? Feel free to preview any current projects. So the clinic operates year round at the Scalia Law School, which is at George Mason University in Arlington. I teach a class in the spring with about a dozen students or so, and they help identify separation of powers issues going on across the country, try to identify cases that we get involved with. They also help do research and drafting of, a brief, of briefs that we end up filing. As of now, we're focusing on amicus briefs. We filed, I think, four or five at the Supreme Court already. We filed another four or so in the circuit courts. We even had one district court amicus brief that we filed. And we've only been doing this for about nine and a half months or so because we just got started this year. And we've already had, I would say, a decent amount of success, depending on how you measure it, at argument. And one of the cases where we submitted an amicus brief, Justice Gorsuch started quoting our brief and asked the government attorney, what do you do with this argument, which is obviously correct. <laughs> and so that was a major victory for the clinic that we were able to get noticed like that. My boss is Jen Mascott, who's a professor at Scalia Law School, relatively well known in this area of law, kind of admin law, constitutional law, separation of powers. <clears throat> She's a former Justice Thomas clerk, has a really big following among not just students, but other professors and judges in this area, kind of going full circle. She has a lot of scholarship about uh, historical understandings on executive officers and who count as executive officers, which has played a role in a lot of the cases that we were talking about earlier about removal protections. And so she oversees me. I run the clinic as the director. We will have the students back again in the spring and another full class session. In the meantime, we've got research assistants who help me out with doing particular drafting because we want to keep briefs going the whole year round. If you really think about it, almost any issue, if you look hard enough, is a separation of powers issue. We've written some amicus briefs in criminal cases where it raises separation of powers between the role of a judge and the role of a jury. If you think about it, that's a separation of powers issue. We filed an amicus brief in a case that <clears throat> involved 
federalism, which is obviously just a different kind of separation of powers, a question of whether the United States could waive a state's sovereign immunity in a particular context. We filed amicus briefs in cases involving the speech and debate clause because the Supreme Court has said that that clause has big separation of powers implications because it's designed to protect legislators from interference from the executive branch and judges. So there's all kinds of cases going on all over the country that raise separation of powers issues. We've had a lot of folks ask us to write briefs for them, and we've been able to help in a fair number. It's it's disappointing when we have to say no to folks, but it also is a good sign in a way because it indicates that people think our briefs are helpful and they want our support and they've got interesting cases and separation of powers is a big area right now. Fantastic. Yeah, it, it um, it's not emphasized enough in our elite law school, shall we say, that the, the separation of powers is the true bulwark of uh, of liberty and of our system. And uh, I actually weirdly managed to uh, satisfy my con law requirement in law school without taking con law. But my understanding is uh, they, they are not as good as they should be about doing a thorough discussion of the separation of powers out front as the meat of the con law course, and they should. And I'm glad you're doing this work. It's been fun. I think I think the students, I get a fair amount of it. I hope they do. Uh, I noticed that in the one year we've been running the clinic, Scalia Law School jumped, I think, 11 spots in the U.S. News ranking. So uh, there's an obvious cause and effect there, I think, between running yes, the clinic. Yes, that's a great note to end on. Trent McCotter, responsible for Scalia Law jumping 11 spots up. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Trent. This has been great. And that district court brief you filed in the Walmart FTC case is very interesting. Maybe we'll get you back on for that one once it gets up into the appellate courts. Uh, that would be a good one to discuss. I am Corbin Barthold. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please go give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. It helps us. Heck, go to techfreedom.org and click on the donate button. That'd be great too. Uh, while you go do that, I will get ready and prepare for the next episode. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.